This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode 168. Let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Well, happy July 4th. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Michael Blanc. I hope you're having a great day and you're somewhere on the beach. I'm going to be in Florida right now on, on the beach. Uh, we're staying at a house that if I were to trip, I would fall right on the sand. That was uh, the way I was, I was looking for this this year. So I hope you're having a great day. You guys are staying safe and having fun at the same time. And uh, actually, let me know uh, on Instagram. Take a quick picture of what you're doing right now as you're listening to this. I'm at the Michael Blanc is the handle, the Michael Blanc on Instagram. Just let me give me a pic and, and let me know what you're doing when you're listening to this. Also on Facebook, Facebook page as well, but we also have a new and super secret group. It's not so secret anymore. It's about 5,000 people in there right now, but it's called Apartment Investor Network. So look for that Apartment Investor Network and uh, join us there. Uh, there's a lot of senior syndicators in there that were active. So it's a great way to get your questions answered and hook up a network. So that's going on as well. So today's July 4th. My gosh, we are just a few weeks away from DealMaker Live. You have about another three weeks to get tickets. Uh, we're almost essentially sold out. I just, I just spoke with my events organizer to see if we can open up some some more tickets and uh, maybe expand the seating that we have. But we have essentially 500 tickets sold to this event. It's going to be absolutely enormous. We have a who's who line up uh, speaking there. We have Robert Helms, or the real estate guy, Joe Fairless, Adam Adams. I even have Hal Elrod, the best-selling author of The Miracle Morning, is going to be there. I interviewed him on the podcast a little while ago. What a great guy. I was fortunate enough to get him to speak, and he's going to blow your minds. That guy is so inspiring. Uh, and you also have to read his new book called The Miracle Equation. Very, very powerful. That's what we interviewed him on the podcast for. So really excited about that. Equally excited I'm about today's guest because one of the most favorite downloaded podcasts are the ones where people have quit their jobs with multifamily. And today's guest is no different. Her name is Anna Kelly. Super inspiring gal, a full-time job, super demanding job, full-time mom. And she builds this business on the side, retires herself, is about to retire her husband. It's just super cool. And and the thing is, she didn't even know that, that syndication raising money was like a thing. So she kind of bootstrapped it. She like borrows money, steals money. No, she doesn't steal money. She house hacks, you know, she gets into this stuff. And only recently did she discover syndication and she describes kind of her fears around that. She also described her hemming and hawing over leaving her job because mentally that's kind of a different thing as well. And then she gives us advice of how, how other people can get started, how she can shortcut some of her journey. It took her five years. That's great. I mean, most people are on a 30-year retirement plan. It took her five years. Syndication, it would have accelerated that. So she talks about how she would do some things differently as well. So let's get right into the show here. Anna Kelly. Anna, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here, Michael. So excited. We got, to, got a chance to hang out a little bit uh, at the Kyle Wilson Mastermind, which was always a lot of fun. This one was in Philly. And uh, really exciting, really excited for you because you just recently quit your job. I did. I retired thanks to real estate. So, all right, before we delve into the story, because people want to know, well, how, and how'd you do it? How'd you do it? But before we do, what's your life like now? How is it different than it was before, perhaps? Sure. So honestly, it's been just as busy. The last 10 years, seriously, I've worked 70 to 80 hours a week, every week for years to get to this place between 
my husband's business and getting that up and running in the multifamily. So I really just gave up one job so that I have one left in real estate. And since I retired May 16th from my corporate career where I had worked for 20 years for AIG, I bought two more multifamily buildings and then took two weeks vacation. So two weeks of vacation is a huge thing and I was never able to take that much at once. But the other two weeks before and this week after, it's been literally 12, 13 hour days. And I thought, how in the world did I do this when I had a full-time job? <laughs> yeah, that's that's very true. So obviously you were doing, you had a full-time job and you were doing, building this up on, on the side to get to this point. Yes. So you're still working very hard. And, and I, I like, I, I just to say, just because someone becomes financially free doesn't mean they stop working. Right. On the other hand, uh, we as entrepreneurs are always looking to work harder because we know if we work harder, we could do more. And so sometimes we struggle. I know I struggle with this, um, mm -hmm. is that we struggle with the life balance, right? Because we know yes. we can actually do more. But how are you, how are you doing with, with that? So I'm really trying to be very purposeful, Michael, right now, because the, the reality is during this time of ramping up, and especially the last five years, really aggressively executing a plan to get to retirement, I really didn't have a great life balance. I tried. I mean, I've got four kids and they're all in sports. So we're with them every moment that they're home from school, but not always fully present. You know, you're handling work, you're in the car, you're on the phone. And then, you know, super late nights once they're in bed in order for me to get all of the things that I needed to with my business, like all of the billing and accounting and all of that kind of stuff. And so I really didn't have very much time consistently to take care of me and really, you know, get to the gym, prepare healthy meals for myself and my family. And so that's the area that I feel like I had the least balance. And so it's a real big focus for me right now, um, and especially retiring right before the summer we try to time it very purposefully so that we can travel as a family and have real time to unplug. And also for me to be able to focus on getting back in the gym, you know, making healthy meals and, and putting that as the first part of my day, you know, having some more time with God than what I've had. And then after I have those, you know, first three hours of the day out focused on me and the personal stuff, then work as hard as I can to grow the business, the multifamily business as large as I can so that I can also shut it down by the time my kids are home from school and just be wife and mom. And so while some people want to really grow and scale, the driver in me, the entrepreneur in me wants to do that. But I've worked so hard to get to this place where I could have a better work-life balance that I'm trying to be real purposeful in, in very slow, methodical growth where it makes sense, but not at the expense of my health and my family. Yeah, that's good. And you now have the option of being intentional. It sounds to me like before you didn't really have the option. So it sounds to me like it's not so much that you're working any less, you're working differently. And right. you appear to control your time more. And would you would you agree with that? Absolutely. Right. Where before I had to steal every waking moment, every lunch break, every vacation day, every early morning, every late evening, I had to fit it in and just make it work so that I could execute my plan where now I'm able to kind of say, okay, what's going to be the most high value impact of my time? What, what's going to make me the most in my time? And really be able to have more time to methodically, systematically outsource the stuff that I don't want to do that I've had to do in the past. Right, because you guys did a lot of things yourself, including uh, managing your property as well. Right. Let's let's get this is this is great, and uh, I've observed that people who recently have quit their job through multifamily is great, right? It's it really is it great. Is. However, they also go through a I should say temporary state of confusion. 
mm-hmm. in various ways, in, as fundamental as possibly, and this may may affect men more than women, but we associate our what we do a lot with who we are. And so when we take that job away, that W-2, we seem to lose some of our identity. We have extra time on our hands. We don't know what to do with that. Are you dealing with any type of confusion like that? Yeah, that's a really good question, Michael, because I don't think enough people kind of talk about that. And especially, you know, back late August of last year is when I really knew that I had enough money with my passive income that I could quit my day job, but I really wouldn't have enough for things that we really wanted to do, like extensive travel before the kids are out of the house. And I knew, or at least I believe, I don't have a crystal ball, but I, I think we are heading toward a recession in maybe the next 12 to 24 months. And I have a financial advisor background. So I'm always thinking ahead and trying to make sure that I am investing wisely, that I'm looking at, you know, economics outside of just multifamily. And that I really struggled with, is it wise for me to quit now when really my desire was to be home with my kids? And I was never able to do it till now. And now the baby's eight. So they're in school. I thought I might as well spend my daytime until they're out of school growing the business and doing what I'm passionate about. But yet I really struggled with a balance of that identity as wife and mom and really knowing that I can't get these next 10 years back that I've got kids at home and two years really till my oldest is, you know, out in college and out of the house with what's wise financially. And so I had this personal inner struggle and and sudden lack of confidence where I've always been very confident and driven and, and being, you know, been able to execute and do more than I thought I had this real turmoil of, is this the wise thing to do? And what's the right balance between mom and, and safety? And, and do I focus on generational wealth? And is it really the right time to quit? And it was hard for me to let go of that job that was a six-figure stable job. You know, I'd weathered many economic storms with AIG, and I felt like it was really not wise. But my heart just said, I just have to do it. And I really have to trust myself. that I can be a good entrepreneur. So where I worked for someone else and I built my multifamily business to really a a multi-million dollar multifamily business and a a good six-figure income, I really viewed myself as an investor and not as an entrepreneur. And so now I'm like, I'm retired from a day job and I'm an entrepreneur and building and scaling slowly a multifamily business, but trying to make sure that I don't lose my identity as wife and mom, what's most important to me. So I'm, I'm in this struggle right now to figure out what's the right way to scale and how do I really have balance and give myself enough time over the summer to just enjoy my kids and have downtime to just be so that I can think more clearly instead of think reactively, if that makes sense. No, it does. And it's going to be fascinating to see kind of how you evolve. And I think you do have to celebrate these these things instead mm-hmm. of uh, running constantly. Let's talk about quitting your job, the mechanics of that. So I've had the pleasure of talking with other people who have quit their jobs. That's like lights me up, right? So yeah. interviewing today is like, I, I can't wait to interview Anna, just quit her job. And, and there's different approaches to, to the challenge. I've seen people who are like, man, I am into this. I am burning the boats. I'm quitting a job. Mm-hmm. Don't have a single deal yet. Maybe have some savings and maybe their <laughs> spouse is working. Then I see others hold on to their job by their own admission, far beyond Mm -hmm. what is actually necessary because they're so afraid to let go. They're still, despite having done all these things, they're still not exactly sure. They want to make sure their cash flow is like super huge and consistent before they jump ship. And then some people are Mm -hmm. right in between somewhere. Right. Of all those different options, which one did you choose and why did you choose that option? 
I think I was more the latter. You know, I was afraid to quit my job, to be quite frank with you. And even though the plan had been, let's get there, when I really started investing in central Pennsylvania was 12 years ago in 2007, right before the crash. And to make a real long story real short, my husband started a job with three quarters of a million dollars in debt, started a practice, a chiropractic practice at the height of the economy in 07. We bought a building and we sold our home in Texas to start a business. And I worked for AIG. And within 18 months, the economy bottomed out. AIG almost went under. And my husband had a brand new business with extensive amounts of debt that he was just basically breaking even because of how much debt we took on to start that business. So my job was really our sole lifeboat. It was like, you know, I needed my job in order to sustain us. And at that point, we had two kids and hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and AIG almost went under. And, you know, my retirement fund went from $101 a share of AIG stock to 43 cents in a couple of weeks. So not only did I think I'm losing my job, but I was, I lost a ton of my retirement and we were really scared. And so, you know, we sustained that. And by the grace of God, we made it through and I kept my job. I was told over and over again, our department's downsizing. Y'all need to look for other jobs. We're probably really shutting our doors. And that was the impetus for me to start really investing once the banks would allow me to invest again about five years ago and take the little bit of equity that we had in the couple buildings that we had at that point to live in a four unit and a mixed use commercial and to start really trying to figure out a plan to work myself out of my job in case I lost my job. And it was really more if than when it, you know, more when than, than if, because I was pretty sure. So AIG had been my lifeboat, but I knew that it was rocky because of where we had been. And so I started the investing with intent to work myself out of my job but then when I got there, I was still a little afraid because it was our health insurance. It was our livelihood for over 20 years. And my husband's job, you know, he was able to sustain his business, but not to the extent that it really supported us financially. So by giving up my job, we're all in supported by real estate, basically. Yeah, it's a big step and a, and a scary one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you mentioned one of the reasons things I'm going to ask you next is why did you get started with real estate investing? And it sounds like you were like, man, this is no security at all. This is like the farthest thing from, and most people think that their job is very secure and, and maybe it isn't, maybe it isn't. But in your case, you were like, I got to get out of this thing. Right, right. And I had started my my career right out of college working for Bank of America. And I was training in the financial advisor path and had some of my securities licenses. So I had clients that we would advise on what to do with their money. And one of the things that I noticed even very young was most of my clients that had a lot of money had a lot of real estate. Hmm. And I always thought one day when I have money, I'd love to invest in real estate. So, you know, I dabbled for a few years. I tried a, f- a house flip in 07. I bought a condo instead of renting an apartment. I bought a house in an up and coming gentrifying area in hopes that the values would go up. And so then when I moved here in 2012 with my husband, we were looking at real estate and it was very expensive to lease space. So we just decided, hey, maybe if we bought a building that had tenants because there were some for sale, at least it would help cover the mortgage. And then when we bought our four unit, we sold a house and we thought it's not real smart to buy a house right now, but we could live in a four unit, have some tenants pay the bills. So we started out really just to be protectionary and to have a little extra money covering our expenses because we were starting over. 
And I never really thought about investing beyond that in, until the crash. And then I couldn't because I worked for AIG and we didn't have any money. And then, you know, I kept asking banks through the years, can I just borrow the equity from these few buildings? And they kept saying no. So as, as soon as they did, I had read enough and learned enough about real estate that I knew I wanted to keep growing. I just didn't think I had a way to do it. You know, I didn't know about syndication and I didn't have any cash to invest. And I really didn't know about hard money lending and all of that kind of stuff. So I just kind of decided we've done a few rentals. It can't be that hard to grow more. We just need more capital or we're going to have to put in more sweat equity till we can grow. And so that's kind of how I started getting into it was just some experience, you know, some basic knowledge and reading a few books on, you know, how to, to grow wealth in multifamily. So five years ago, you said the banks were the first time willing to lend you something. You're like, yeah. this is great. What did you do with that opportunity now after so your four unit? The first thing I did, so I had had a four unit we lived in. I had had a multi-use. And when the market did tank, I borrowed the last bit of money I could for my 401k in 08. And I bought a small multi because I was like, at least I'd have another you know, four units bringing in about twelve or $1,300 a month. So I had 12 units in three buildings. And I was able to get those refinanced and I did a line of credit and then an equity loan. And I was able to use that. The banks were comfortable with it as long as I was only using it to buy more buildings. And so we took that money and we bought two single family foreclosure homes that we rehabbed and we put a tenant in cash out refied again and then just kept repeating. And then we bought a couple more four unit apartment buildings at the same time, I started researching seller financing and I started reaching out to older retiring sellers of four unit buildings because I knew I couldn't really go commercial. I didn't have a lot of money to put down, but I, I knew four unit buildings in my area were kind of an untapped market where they sat for a long time. And most investors were either going after single flips or single rentals or much bigger. So I just kind of honed in on that four unit sweet spot and started buying them up as fast as I could. Yeah. So what I love is you didn't even know about syndication, which arguably is actually easier than some of the oh, stuff you did. You yes. borrowed from your 401k, which people said, don't do that. That's a bad idea. Bad, bad, bad. <laughs> you borrowed from that. You bought a bunch of stuff. Then you refinanced and used it to buy more buildings, right? Yes. And so you, you almost like bootstrapped this thing a little bit. I did. And you know, I had read some books on scaling and multifamily. And I knew from talking to lots of investors in this area, some banks, some appraisers, that four unit buildings in my area even though they'll kind of tap out like a residential property based on comps. So you can't just press the NOI and say, oh, it's, you know, here's the cap rate. It's going to go up to the sky's the limit. But they evaluated them primarily based on the income approach instead of a comp approach. And so I was able to treat them like a commercial building, like a five plus, and get as much of a value force up to that top limit. So I started with that thinking, if I can just grow these, then as I have cash, I'll start buying bigger ones that I can afford to buy but with absolutely no knowledge of syndication at that point. So you kept uh, accumulating these, these smaller buildings in around central Pennsylvania. Yes. And at what point did you consider scaling that up more versus doing the smaller ones and, and start thinking about syndication? What was going on there? So I was telling you last August, I was at the point where I knew that I could, you know, I had a five-year plan to replace my income. I was four years in and I had replaced my income and I had a, a goal at that point of $5 million in residential real estate that I owned 100%. So in August, I had met that number and I had started paying down debt. But I knew, you know, we talked about this kind of fear of letting go. 
I thought, I really don't have six months of expenses for all my buildings to remain bankable and strong in a recession. And I really didn't have as much. I wanted a year's salary set aside before I left. And I knew that if I wanted to keep going, it was going to take me at least another year to two years to get that done. And I didn't want to wait that long. And so I had heard of syndication. I had been to a seminar put on by a scammer, you know, 10 years ago and was kind of jaded from it. But I just kind of put it in the back of my head and never really studied it. And I, I met some people that were syndicating back in August, September at an event that I went to with Kyle Wilson and, and with Stephen Lloyd that we both know. And, you know, thought, okay, I've done this. I've done it the hard way. I know how to, to increase the value and, and to manage properties. It's really just doing it on a larger scale with more efficiency. And so I just started going after larger deals. I started looking for off-market deals and some people to partner with. And in September, I found an off-market 73 unit with 44 storage units. Um, I was planning to syndicate it, but I just did it with two other partners. So we bought a 73 unit. And that allowed me enough money with acquisition fees and my asset management fees to wipe out most of the rest of the debt. I sold a couple of small properties that I had a lot of equity in that I really didn't like anymore and saved you know, more expenses. And then that just kind of got the ball rolling. I thought this is so much easier than, than doing all the small stuff. And, and really it was me, my husband did all of the, the rehab and we kind of partnered on construction rehab with others. But from finding deals to the financing, to the property management, leasing, I've done everything. And so I thought this is so much nicer to be an asset manager, to put the deal together, handle the financing up front, but to have on-site property manager and maintenance is, was so much better. So that was my first one that we did. And I've done two since. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. So that 73 unit you did, you essentially doubled the size of your portfolio. You had taken you four years essentially to accumulate. Yes. And now look, you were on a four or five year retirement plan, which is great. Most people are on the 30 year plan, right? <laughs> Now, sure. knowing now what you know now, what, what would you tell your younger self, let's say even five years ago, it's like, ah, I need to get myself out of this job at one point. Mm -hmm. And what would you tell yourself would be the best, fastest, most efficient, safest route to do that? Well, you know, Michael, I've thought about this a lot as I've talked to different people and I've helped different people kind of get started in, in real estate a little bit into small multis. And most people either have time or money. If you don't have either one, then you've got to get really creative and, and work to look for other people's time and other people's money that you can leverage. But I really didn't have money. So we had to put in the time and the sweat equity in order to really build up enough that I could retire on. I'm not sure that I would have stopped buying my own because they, they have this longevity that I can own. You know, I've got 100%, I've got 100% control, and I can really bank on this retirement income for the next 20 or 30 years. I'm 44 years old, so I, you know, bought my retirement 21 years early, and I can bank on those properties being there where in syndication, you know, you really have a shorter shelf life because you've got investors and you've got to, they want the return of their money and they want the property sold in a few years. So I think I would have done a two-track, a two-prong approach. I would have kept buying what I bought to allow me that long-term stability of income, but then I would have taken, you know, what I made and I would have gone out and maybe invested with some other investors and really use my skills in finding and negotiating deals to be able to syndicate deals with other partners much more quickly than, than what I did. Yeah, so what I'm hearing you say is you would have syndicated earlier on 
for number sure. one. Uh, but number two, you also would have continued buying your your own for the reasons you just mentioned. Um, there's also kind of a hybrid because I'm thinking about the same things. When you have a certain amount of money, what do you do with the money? Do you buy your right. own small deals? There's uh, obviously even better tax advantages if you do that. Like you said, you control it. You can do whatever you want. A good hybrid is basically doing these value-add deals with investors and then refinancing, of course, where the majority of the capital is returned to the investors, let's say, 75%. And not, not, every, not every deal is like that. But once you can return that amount of capital to the investor, they really have no more say. Someone complains to you, hey, you promised me a five-year sale. I'm like, basically, the majority of your capital, I'm never selling this thing again. Right. Absolutely. And, and and I think that's totally acceptable because now the investor gets the majority, vast majority of their money back. They're still getting a return on the money they have in the deal. They can take that same money, invest in another deal, get another return. So now they're getting double return. Absolutely. And so they, they keep turning this money over in these two or three year refinance and the same $100,000 keeps generating a return and a return and a return. And that's kind Absolutely. of what I, that's the thing that bothers me about the syndication as well. <clears throat> so if I'm buying just a stable deal, I can't refi. I have to do something near five for the investors is what I said. So now I got to sell this daggone thing. I may not like that. I may like the cash flow. Right. And so that bothers me a little bit for the reasons you just said. And if we can find these value add deals where we can do a reasonable good cash out refinance, we can maybe satisfy both the investors and do a long term hold. I absolutely agree. Yeah. And and even now, even when I'm putting together these these larger deals, and, and I'll caveat that with both, I, I did a 31 unit with the same partners that we did the 73 units and we were going to syndicate, but we just decided to keep the deal because we wanted it for the long term. It was in our backyard. We wanted to, you know, hold it 10 years or whatever. So we're starting to look at larger deals to syndicate, but I haven't gone through a cycle with with more than two partners, you know, with with a syndicated deal to experience it other than just kind of understand it on paper. But as I put deals together and, and get acquisition fees, I'm putting them right back into buying more properties for myself that I own 100% of. So I think that's a smart thing to do. And it brings up a good point about your investor makeup. And in the beginning, we just kind of, whenever someone wants to invest with us, we tend to take their money, but sometimes there's a fit or a non-fit with the investment. So for example, typically we promise some kind of liquidity event in year five, sometimes seven. Mm -hmm. And that's great because most investors, that's what they're looking for. Like, I'm, I'm not going to let you tie up my money for 10 years. But there's one deal where we say, look, we're just going to be at the 10-year hold. And it repels a certain number of investors, but it attracts a certain other kind of investors who want the same right. thing. So there's this alignment sometimes. If you really want buy and hold, I know another investor, he does all of his 10-year holds. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't want that, guess what? You're not going to invest with him, but he's going to attract other people that think like him. And right. I think it's really important that you're clear on what your kind of your values are just in general, uh, mm -hmm. even with your investing. And then you find investors that philosophically align with what you want to do. Right, right. I agree. And I think, you know, at this point in kind of the market cycle and where we're going, I see a lot of people running out um, and looking in a whole lot of new markets where they really don't have any boots on the ground, any, you know, real partnerships and strategic partnerships there, where I think that maybe they're, they're taking on a little more risk because they're just saying, oh, this is, I've heard this is a great market. I'm going to buy all these properties and they're going to bring these investors in. While I'm looking at, and one of my partners is looking at a couple of strategic markets and developing some relationships there, we felt like for us to be comfortable syndicating our first deal, even though between us, we own several hundred units and, and we have a lot of experience you know, in, in real estate, we want to make sure we start syndicating in deals where we know the market, we know the rents. It's not just guessing like we have properties in this area, so we know. So we're really targeting properties within about a two-hour radius of us first to syndicate. And then once we know that we can 
you know, do what we, we would need to do for our investors, then kind of go out into those other markets unless we find some good partnerships, you know, in advance. And that's really important. Now, you have a good amount of experience yourself, but it sounds like you've aligned yourself with someone equal to or even having more experience than you. Why did you do that? And and what's the lesson in there for people listening or watching to here? Yeah, that's a really good point, Michael. So back when I was looking at potentially getting into some larger multifamily deals, I knew, first of all, I'm basically working two full-time jobs. So I don't have time to be everything that I am. And I've got to start outsourcing some things and figuring out what I'm best at, what I enjoy, and finding some other people to align with that we could go on and, and start to scale and grow. And so there was another investor in my area. We had both spoken at several of the local meetup groups multiple times over the years. So we knew of each other, but we really hadn't sat down and, and had a, a conversation. And kind of organically, he had reached out to me. And then um, I found a property and reached back out to him. And I knew that he was really good at raising money and he was really good at construction. So he's been in real estate you know, for 20 plus years as a builder they have an agency and have 12 agents under them. They flip about 50 or 60 houses a year and had several hundred units in their own family business portfolio. So I, I knew that they've kind of seen the gamut of the market cycles and been in every area of real estate. And we both you know, had an alignment of goals and, and both knew what our strengths were. And they're really good at the construction side and they have a property management company. And I'm really good on the deal acquisition, the negotiation um, the banking and the finance. And I've looked at lots of investments at, with a private placement background. And I understand SEC because I've done SEC audits. So we just decided it was a good alignment and that we would buy an investment or two together, see how it goes, make sure that we have a, a strong partnership and that our vision of our roles, you know, aligned and then to kind of see where it goes. And we've done two deals together. And now we've started a company, you know, to start going after larger deals together. That's fabulous. So what kind of advice do you have for people uh, around joint venturing? What are some of the things that you think have worked? Uh, what to look for when when to joint venture and maybe when not to? Sure. So with my partner, Rob, and I, we really um, both had experience. So I think it's important to find somebody that has experience if you're going to start a business together. If you're doing one deal, maybe you know one person doesn't have a lot of experience but they know, you know, they know how to go out and find deals or they're willing to put the time in to, to learn how to analyze. So someone that's teachable and that can have a, a strong goal, but really people that complement one another. So if you've got somebody that's really a, a high level thinker and can look long-term and is more of a visionary, you might want to partner with someone that's more detail oriented and an executor. Or if there's someone that knows how to find off market deals um, and you're not great at finding deals, but you're great at raising money, then there's some good alignments where you're both naturally doing what's a good fit for you and that you enjoy and not trying to take on things that you really don't want to do. And when you can find someone that your personalities mesh, um, you both got experience, you're both willing to listen to one another and to be malleable, but also, you know, leverage your strengths and, and hire out or find, you know, people to do the other things, then that, that's a good beginning for a good partnership. So this is fantastic. You know, again, I'm so happy that you were able to uh, quit your job and it's so awesome. So what is your your, your uh, parting guidance for someone who might be in the same shoes that you were five years ago and like, man, I need to get out of this thing somehow. Like you sit them down over a cup of coffee and say, here's what you got to do. Yeah. I, I think a couple of things. I think you've got to be really honest with yourself and 
what you want and why you want it. A lot of people just think, oh, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to go into real estate and I'm going to live this passive lifestyle. They don't realize the amount of, of active work that's involved to really get to that point. And you know, it's going to take a few years, most likely, not for everybody, but to really nose to the grindstone hard work, whether you're syndicating, whether you're going out and finding deals or finding money, it takes a lot of time and investment in your knowledge and in, in relationships and networking. So just to be prepared that it's, it's not generally an overnight get rich quick kind of thing. You can get a deal and, and I've read your book and it's great. I highly recommend it in being methodical and being out there and just putting the work in and, and just going for it. But it's going to take time to really get to the point where you can replace your income, do it safely and do it wisely. So I think just be prepared for a lot of time investment initially. Don't just jump ship and quit your job without a plan, um, just in hopes that things are going to go well. Really to understand a, a bit about the economy and economic cycles and market cycles to make sure that you're investing wisely and with partners who have experience and have been through some of those cycles so that you can, you know, kind of have the best of both worlds. You know, I, I see too many people quit their job and then it doesn't work out. And in six months, they're, they're desperate. You know, and I hate to see people do that. But I see a lot of people too that on the other extreme just don't take any action and they sit there and read and learn and hope and you've got to go for it. You know, I was scared to death to syndicate or to even partner with somebody on a bigger deal, even though I had done, you know, $5 million worth of real estate and lots of buildings over years, there was this little bit of fear of, can I really do this? And if I hadn't just gone for it and done it, it never would have happened. So, you know, go for it. Just be wise in, in how you do it and who you're partner with and who you're aligning yourself with. One of the biggest objections I hear a lot is time. And you mentioned that uh, you're, I almost feel like you're talking people out of it, which is great. That's just as good, <laughs> right? Time is a, is a big factor. Uh, my observation is 100% of people who have quit their jobs and multifamily actually had a full-time job beforehand, right? Mm -hmm. So obviously, it's clearly possible. But you hear it all the time. I'm already working 40, 50, whatever hours a week. I don't have the time for it. And you talked about, obviously, well, you were had a very demanding job and you spent a lot of time work building this up on the side until the income started to start replacing your income. So what, what's your advice for someone who says, I don't have any time? Really, you make time for what's important to you, Michael. And I, I tell people, if I can do this as a wife and a mom of four and having a full-time job, anybody can do it. It may take you longer to do it, depending on how much time you're willing to commit to it. But for myself, you know, I actually audited my time for my accountant so that I could make sure that I was a real estate professional before I claimed that. And I worked 82 hours a week for probably the last four to five years consistently with very few breaks. And it was hard. It is not easy. But I was driven. I was determined. And I knew in five years, I will replace my six-figure income. And I just did whatever it takes. You have to have a do-whatever-it-takes attitude you make the time for what's important to you. And it is not easy. But if you consider, you know, sacrificing time for a couple of years to buy yourself decades of financial freedom from a full-time job, it is well worth it. And you just have to be willing to, to do what's hard and to do what no one else does in order to get to a place where no one else is. So the key is sticking with it and really putting the effort into it. But there's days that, you know, you have setbacks, challenges, you're discouraged. And, you know, that washes a lot of people out. They kind of tend to give up when that happens. How did you continue working through some of those setbacks or low points? I think just having the resilience and the determination to know that no matter what, every setback is an opportunity for 
you know, bouncing back. Our book that we were in, Resilience, Turning Your Setback into a Comeback, I feel like I've lived that. I've had so many. You know, I thought that I'd be home with my kids literally 12 years ago, and it took you know, 12 years longer than I thought it would because of so many unforeseen things that happen, like the market crashing or, you know, healthcare changing. And so I've just learned through experience to become resilient and to not change your goals and your dreams because things are hard, but change the way you get there. So you've got to be able to sit back and say, when things are hard, I know this is a trial. How am I going to go around it? How am I going to think differently or do differently to overcome it and to keep going? And I just had that grit and that determination that no matter what, I was going to keep going. And there were times when I had to take a mental break. You know, I might have taken a month or two off and been like, I'm not buying anything else. I just need a break. I need to be mom. I need to take care of myself. And then I'd get right back in it. So that's kind of how I've done it. That's awesome. And this is so great, you know, because you're going to inspire so many people who are wondering mm-hmm. what they need to do. And like you said, if, if you do it as a, as a mom, full-time job, and you're doing this on the side, no one really can have any excuse whatsoever. So thank you so much <laughs> for coming on the show. We'll let you go. How can people connect with you? Sure. You can find me on Facebook at Anna, R-E-I Mom Kelly. Um, I also have a website. It's in, it's reimom.com and a Facebook page, Creating Wealth That Lasts with Anna, R-E-I Mom, where I just give some t- tidbits on some different ways to think about investing differently. Love it so much. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. So Grant Cardone was interviewed recently by Lewis Howes on his podcast, Love Lewis Howes, The School of Greatness. And it's a couple, second time that uh, Lewis has interviewed Grant and they know each other pretty well, so they're comfortable around each other. So uh, Lewis has his uncanny ability to make Grant squirm in his seat. And this uh, interview was no different. So it's very entertaining from that perspective. But he always asks him at the end, hey, kind of what's your secret to success? What's your superpower? And Grant thought about it. And I was like, I thought he was going to say, it's my jet, fool, you know, or something like that. And he thought about it. And he says consistency consistency i was like well i didn't see that one coming and here's what he meant by that it's i am successful because i do the same thing with intensity on the same thing for long periods of time that's what makes me successful now i struggled with this in a, in a very early early stage i was doing this i learned to trade stocks and options got in apartment buildings did a house flip i negotiated short sales i got into restaurants and what happens is you spread yourself so thin you never give enough time to actually get good at one thing and the problem with entrepreneurs is we suffer from this thing called shiny objectitis which is we chase shiny objects so for me if i figure something out i love figuring stuff out and I have a success or two, I'm like, great, let's move on. But that doesn't actually give enough time to actually truly become successful with something. And I interviewed Alan Schnoor a little while back and his mind says he gives everything five years and then he does in fact get bored and then he outsources that deal or, or brings on a partner to run that business. So he'll flip houses for five years. He'll get into retail shops for five years. And five years is a pretty good amount of time. So Anna on the show said the same thing. It's like one of her secret successes, she just kept sticking to it, reminding herself why she was doing what she was doing. It was her job to provide financial security for the family because her husband was off and he was he was building up a, a medical practice, which took a long time to get off, had a lot of debt in there, and it was an unreliable path. So she took it, she felt the responsibility to provide that financial security. And that reminded her every single time when she was having a down day to stick with it over long periods of time. I think that's really the, the secret, guys. I get a lot of people, you know, after two and a half months, 
They're like, oh, it's taking so much time. I don't have a deal yet. I was like, are you kidding me right now? You're on a one to two year retirement plan and you're complaining at month three? Seriously? Right? So consistency is key. And she brought that she brought that out as well. Obviously, one secret is to raise money. She didn't discover them until recently. So that's what she would do differently. Interesting that she does joint venturing because she has about seven units before she started joint venturing around syndication. And I see that. It's a very powerful thing. And I see that primarily with our mentoring students because we have so many mentoring students right now. We're creating something called the Elite Investors Club. And they are the initial members of that. And so we are actually encouraging facilitation. And what, what's happening is we see joint ventures where a deal finder, for example, is joint ventures with a capital raiser who joint ventures with a more experienced former student that maybe have done a couple deals, right? So that alignment is super, super powerful because you, you, every person serves a purpose. And so Anna discovered the same thing, and I want to pass that on to you as well. And this is why Dealmaker Live is going to be so cool uh, end of July 26, 27. Just Google Dealmaker Live uh, if you can still get tickets. But the networking there is going to be insane. We're going to have like these stickers. You're going to have a, a deal finder sticker or a capital raiser sticker. It's going to be really easy for you to joint venture. That's what we want. The joint venturing is so unbelievably powerful. And Anna mentioned it kind of on the buy to buy. But if you're intentional about it, you can really accelerate things a lot. And then time management, right? Super important. Look, there's no excuse, guys. And I hear it all the time. And if I hear that, here's the thing. It's not a time management problem. It's a priority problem. Even Anna said it as well. You will make time for things that are important to you. If you feel you don't have time to build your multifamily business up on the side, it's not important to you. Something else is. You know, it could be work. That's most of the time what it is. It could be vegging in front of the TV, which happens also. Now, it could be family, and that's very commendable. In that case, though, it would require, it should always require a conversation with your spouse because it's a team effort. And so the family might have to take a back burner for one or two years until you build us up. Because like Anna says, you work really hard for one or two years for decades of financial freedom. So is it worth it? I think it is if it's a team, if it's a team sport, right? If your spouse becomes... Uh, becomes angry that you're not pulling your own weight, that's going to be a problem. That's not a team sport. So really, really, uh, it's not a time management. It's a priority issue as well. I mentioned our mentoring program here. Really, really excited about that. You can find out more about it at themichaelblanc.com forward slash mentor. You can schedule a free strategy session with us. It's not for everyone. It's a fairly large investment. But if you can afford it, the observation has been that you accelerate your goals. You do much bigger deals and you avoid the big mistakes. That's really what it, what it is. So we have several of our mentoring students speaking at Dealmaker Live. It is real people doing real deals. And they're going to present their first deal. You're going to have a chance to, to ask them questions. And we're going to break out rooms for them as well so you can really understand how they found that deal how they raised money for it and and most importantly the challenges they overcame i mean gosh the three that that we that are you know that we picked for them they there's some twists and turns in that one and it's really powerful but anyway mentoring is so important if, if you're able to to make the investment it's the michaelblank.com forward slash mentor super super there's going to be a lot of mentoring students there and they're so excited to share their success stories with everybody so anyway hope you find that valuable here and inspiring again as anna says and i agree if she can do it anyone can do it catch you guys next episode Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.